things I finished actually. I could talk about things I finished, but that's probably not in keeping with the theme, is it? It's against the rules. You can't talk about <laughs> stuff you finish. <laughs> I just want to say that sometimes I finish things. <laughs> just for the record. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Unfinished Unpublished. My name's Emily Anderson and my guest today is Peter Jackson, who is an artist. Peter is chiefly known for his use of ceramic figures and he writes for contemporary arts publications. He was previously a studio member at the Newbridge Project. You can find out more about Peter and his work in the programme notes. He's here today to talk about a project on trans architecture that he started but never finished and that he thinks might need a new form. I'll let him explain what trans architecture is later on in the programme and he also gives some really good examples of trans architecture, including trans architecture that you can see in Newcastle. If you have an unfinished or unpublished project that you'd like to talk about, I'd really love to hear from you. Everyone's welcome and you can email me on unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at True Bagelrag. Okay, so the unfinished project that you're here to talk about today is an article on trans architecture. And you explained to me in an email that trans architecture is architecture that has been relocated. Could you maybe explain a little bit more in a little bit more detail what that involves and maybe give some examples of when that's happened. So it's architecture. And uh, when we think about architecture, architecture is not really supposed to move, is it? It's, it's mm-hmm. a static thing. But trans architecture is, is buildings that have been moved. And you think, well, why on earth would you move a building? Who's yeah. going to do that? That's just bonkers. But yeah, it's, it's, it's quite common in places. I mean, more in America, I think that it's a culture of moving big houses on the backs of lorries and things. But yes, but I wasn't looking to just talk about those. I, I just was looking for other examples of things that have happened that were perhaps more interesting. So um, there's an example in Exeter. There's a house which is called, it's aptly, they call it the house that moved. <laughs> and uh, it was originally built uh, like 16th century. So it's pretty old. Mm. And then in the 60s, there was, there was like a threat to demolish it, basically. But people like wanted to preserve it. So we're going to build this new road. And so they just, they got these wooden rollers and they lifted it up and they moved it like 70 metres down the end of the road, <laughs> round the corner onto a different street. Fantastic. I think there's an archival video on YouTube you can probably watch of it. So that was, that's amazing. Yeah. The last time I looked, it was a bridal shop. Okay. <laughs> there's other, there's so many examples and I'll talk about loads of them, I guess, or a few of them. Go ahead. Yeah. There was a guy in the news a while back in Miami who took a... A mansion, it wasn't really a house, it was a mansion, like 10,000 square foot, seven bedroom thing on Star Island. So like rich and famous kind of territory. Yeah. Uh, So this building was built in the 20s and uh, in a kind of Mediterranean style. The building, it wasn't kind of modern enough for him. So he wanted a bigger Mm -hmm. one, but he didn't want to destroy the old one. So he he moved it uh, like 90 meters down to the other end of his his Mm -hmm. massive plot of land. And he built a new 20,000 square foot mansion on it, on that. On that same spot, yeah, uh, which is bizarre. I just find like <laughs> you modernise surely, but he just yeah, he wanted to keep that house as it was. Uh, and then one of my favourites is um, mm. there was this this house in south of Edinburgh, 
It was like 19th century house called Lockhart House. And it's not in Edinburgh, it's not south of Edinburgh, it's not in Scotland, it's now in Japan. Okay. It's like a stately home building, a bit of a mansion, and there's this uh, Japanese actor who in the 80s, his name is um, Masakiyo Sugawa, and he was on holiday in Scotland during the 80, in the 80s, and he saw this building and decided he wanted it. So he arranged for the building to be transported brick by brick. Oh my goodness across the Siberian Railroad. So he had to get like permission from the USSR. So at the time it was Gorbachev. He allowed this to go through through Soviet Russia. And uh, he had the whole house rebuilt in Japan, in North Kanto. And he renamed it Lockhart Castle. But he changed the spelling of heart from that kind of Scottish spelling of H-A-R-T mm. to heart as we know of H-E-A-R-T. He's trying to make it like a romantic destination for lovers. Yeah. And... Um, the really bonkers thing is he filled the house with his collection of Santa Claus memorabilia, like ephemera of Santa Claus from like various countries from around the world. And he opened a Santa museum in it, in this massive mansion that he's transported from Scotland to Japan. <laughs> so I have lots of questions here, a lot of which are to do with logistics, actually. But I wanted to ask, it sounds like quite a risky business doing this moving of buildings, especially perhaps when you're moving really old buildings. Does it not do damage to the things that you're moving? Yeah, I, I would imagine so. With some buildings, they photograph it and then they number all the bricks on the photographic records and the bricks themselves would actually be numbered, mm -hmm. usually in chalk. So if it rained, there was no chance of putting it back together. <laughs> but um, <laughs> And then the, they, they try and put them back together. But uh, that's if okay. you take the whole building apart and put it back together, which is a very risky strategy which they did to, to move the, the house to Japan. And then others are, yeah, you just lift the whole house. The example in Exeter, mm -hmm. they just took the whole house up and, and rolled it, which sounds pretty primitive, doing it on yeah. wooden rollers yeah. in the 60s, but they made it happen. I think you said that there's some evidence of trans architecture that it's possible to see in Newcastle. Yes, there is. There is the Royal Arcade, or there was the Royal Arcade, which was built in... 19th century, I think it was Richard Granger building, and mm. he did a lot of Newcastle, as many people will know. And the building was taken apart in the 60s. It had these big columns on the front of it. They numbered it all brick by brick, said they put it back together, and they didn't. And mm -hmm. the columns were dispersed throughout the parks of Newcastle. So you can see them in Jesmond Dean, hmm. Armstrong Park, Heaton Park. There's just these random bits of column that are just dispersed around the place. Yeah. because they didn't put the Royal Arcade back together, which is fascinating. And then if you go to Beamish, obviously the Beamish Museum, or theme park, as I like to call it, because I kind of <laughs> think of it like a sort of historical theme park. They've got, the, they've got buildings there, which they brought in from mining villages. So they've relocated miners' cottages, authentic mm. cottages, to Beamish, and they're continuing to do this with other buildings as well. I think there's plans to bring in a cinema from Sunderland, like in oh, the wow. 50s or something. Yeah. And that... That's that's not just in Newcastle. There's other you know, historical museums like that across the country. Like um, St. Fagans in near Cardiff has got similar things where they've relocated houses and original buildings from different eras to preserve them. And, and I, I think it's, it's really good to preserve them for other people for other years. The one example that you gave me of trans architecture that I found really intriguing was that of a whole town in Sweden that was relocated. Could you tell me the story of what happened there? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. It's in um, the north of Sweden. It's a 
town called Kiruna, and because of mm-hmm. this like extensive iron mine they've got running around the city and the works that happen there, it's causing the city to collapse. The city's council decided they would relocate, and with help from the the mine mining company and also from a designer, I think they've got like a city design build team in. They're gonna rebuild the city like two miles away to the east and build some new buildings. So there's modern buildings which are, are really functional and work. They're gonna abandon the old site. But they're also going to take some of the kind of major buildings, like the iconic stuff. They've got like the clock tower and things like that. And they're going to transport yeah. those to this new city two miles away. They're trying to put a positive spin on it because it's going to up, you know, such upheaval for a lot of people. But um, it should make it a very modern city with close links to nature trails and, and green spaces. It could be a great improvement, but a lot of work. They reckon it'll take them like 20 years to move this whole city. And generally speaking, are you a fan of trans architecture or do you tend to think that it's wasted effort or maybe that it would be simpler to build something new yeah yeah I don't think it's wasted effort as such but I do think like um I wonder where it will go and how far it can get to to a point where you you could have like in the future people just buying up buildings and moving them around all over the world I mean yeah we've seen like the United Emirates Emirates building this uh, Louvre museum mm-hmm. and uh, an importing culture in like that and in some ways it's it's not different to what culture has always been doing I mean, you know the British Museum which is bringing lots of culture and artifacts from other places like pilfered yeah uh, over the years historically and it happens the same in architecture as well in features like yeah Roman arches Greek columns uh, Egyptian katouches on on you know, British buildings and things so yeah it's I find that interesting and fascinating that culturally appropriating other architectural styles from different cultures is happening and um people are confined by borders i suppose and mm. to a degree and, and buildings you don't think they can actually move and they're not sentient so yeah uh the idea that they can move i think could really bring about some interesting things and it's about the authenticity of the the object of the building isn't it they have to own and that's interesting present you with the actual building and say like yeah this has come all the way from such and such yeah i wonder in in the future like if maybe more of this will happen, if mm. technology allows that people can, companies, organisations, countries with vast wealth might say, well, let's import more buildings that we want the style of and we enjoy, but it has to be authentic. And some of the examples you were describing then felt almost like they could be classed as an artistic installation. I was thinking of the Santa House in particular. Yeah. And I know that you've got a background in art and you also were looking at some artists who had experimented with trans architecture. Could you tell me about that crossover between art and trans architecture? So yeah, contemporary art is, is what I've been working for a while and as an artist uh, many years. Mm. I've always been drawn to towards that and I, I guess I'd, maybe I didn't realise it for a while but I was interested in the house as this motif of, that we can all identify with. Yeah. And yeah, but there's been lots of artists who've, who've worked with the house, but they've worked physically with these ideas of the house. So Cornelia Parker did a project where she rebuilt she rebuilt the house from the movie Psycho, the Hitchcock film, Psycho. Okay, she she yeah. put, rebuilt this on top of the Met Museum in New York. And she was interested in like the psychology of like that architecture and what happens when you remove something from a movie and put it in the real world, you know. It was just a facade of the house, but it still mm. was, it was interesting. I think what was really interesting for me is that that house itself, Hitchcock was inspired by a painting he saw of Edward Hopper's paintings. And okay. when you see houses in Edward Hopper's paintings, you can really see the, the psycho house and you 
changes maybe Hopper in a way, kind of gives it eerie eeriness to it. And then yeah, there's um, there's a guy called Ryan Mendoza as well who uh, was in the news a few years back, and it was what, 2016, and he bought the home of Rosa Parks. Okay. So civil black rights activist in America who famously refused to give a seat up to a white uh, white man on the bus. Yeah. That house was under threat of demolition, and he. He bought that house and he transported it to Berlin. So it's not even in the same country anymore. So it's gone yeah. from Detroit um, and now it's in Berlin and he wanted to preserve that. So it exists today as a kind of record of Rosa Parks' life with like audio recordings. Interesting. And more also, he does these experimental sound performances in it. And it's about that space as much as it's about his use of it as recordings. It's This is the house that Rosa Parks lived in yeah. and it's now in Berlin. You would never have imagined. I can't imagine she would ever have thought in her lifetime. Like, there are, there's different reasons, like political reasons, psychological. People are mm. interested in different things. Some people are just interested in artists are just interested in like architecture as architecture. So uh, Wolfgang Vailida, who's a Newcastle-based artist who mm. teaches at the university, he did lots of projects where he deconstructed and reconstructed houses in various cities around the world. I guess maybe it was a criticism of property development or heritage destruction for him or maybe it was just he was interested in he was in, he was interested in architecture and as an artist he wanted to work more in that but it was interesting you know he, he created these time lapses and you could see the buildings being produced over time in various cities uh, and sometimes he did one did one which reflected this building in holland it's a kind of iconic style of one of those buildings you see in amsterdam on the side of the canals and he built one of these and had it rebuilt and deconstructed so it's less about moving something, although those projects did move around brick by brick to different cities, mm-hmm. but also how they're rebuilt. Uh, but there's other artists as well who do more performative things. So um, Turner Prize winner Simon Starling, he won the Turner Prize for his piece Shed Boat Shed. Okay. So he took a shed and he took it apart, made it into a boat, sailed it down a river, and then rebuilt it in a new location as the shed again. Okay. And that fits perfectly with that whole idea of what trans architecture is and in fact it became something beyond that it became something else it had another function it was a boat as well <laughs> it's like and um there was an artist there is an artist who's i really admire the work of uh, she's called emily speed mm-hmm. and she did a series of performances with some costumes uh, people dressed up as buildings she calls it a parade of architectural commas and this happened at the yorkshire sculpture park a few years back as part of their kind of 40th anniversary celebrations. and um, I know it well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so so she had these performers dressed up as as buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't see their faces necessarily. They were obscured and they were just buildings moving around the, <laughs> the park. And it was, I didn't see it, unfortunately. I couldn't get there. But um, yeah. from the footage I've seen, it, it just looked um, whimsical. Yes. Yeah. And I really liked that. I was really interested in what you were saying about the act of moving buildings being about having kind of the real authentic thing. But then I was wondering, do you think that removing buildings from their original setting necessarily kind of takes away from their authenticity? Is ever possible to completely preserve that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You, you, you're removing it from its, its context, aren't you? Yeah. Perhaps over time it would, that context changes anyway. It depends how long it's been, but, I don't know what the kind of aura of things is like around Rosa Parks' house, but Mm. I can't imagine it's the same in Berlin. That's the example I was thinking of, yeah. It's like moving the Anne Frank house from Amsterdam or something. Mm. You just, 
for what purpose? I don't know. But for him, it was about preserving it because it was going to be lost. And so I think if it's going to be lost, then if there's a way to preserve that and it's going to keep that alive, then yeah, then maybe it's worth, it's totally worth doing. I'm really interested in objects and their 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 powers, I suppose, their auras and the authenticity of those and replicas. Mm. Will it have the the same impact if it's not in its original location? Yeah. I suppose it does depend on the function of what you're you're hoping it will achieve, but um, it becomes a connotation, I suppose. Yeah, this is the house that Rosa Parks lived in, but not in the place that she lived. Okay, well, let's move on now to talking about the project that you didn't finish about trans architecture. What was it about trans architecture that inspired your unfinished project? Not to be unfinished, obviously. I did plan <laughs> to finish it. It did start as something that was just anecdotal. I would talk to people about because I was fascinated by these these various ideas of people who move buildings. Yeah. And then it was not long after finishing my master's in history of art. Mm. There's a few different things that came together for me that just clicked. And one of those was reading about Bruno Schultz. And he was he was born in Poland. Technically, it was the former Habsburg monarchy, kingdom of Galicia, Loda Maria. So he was born there in the late 19th century in a, in a town called Drohobysh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He was born there, uh, an artist and writer. He wrote the book Street of Crocodiles. He was Jewish, and during World War II, he was, um, yeah, he was, uh, he was kept as a slave to an officer. Mm-hmm. Over 900 Jewish people from the city died during World War II, uh, and he was one of those as well, but he was spared his life for a time as a slave to an officer, which was a fairly common practice amongst higher-ranking uh, officers. Yeah. But... Um, Whilst he was working for this officer, he he was tasked with painting a mural for a child's bedroom, for this, this officer's child's bedroom. So he was doing this project. And the officer who, technically like of his owner, really, he went out and he shot a Jewish dentist who belonged to another officer who was a Gestapo officer. And in retaliation, that guy then went and shot Schultz. And okay. um, that was the tragic end to his life. It was known about that these murals had existed, but no one knew where. And then after like 60 years of never seeing them, this filmmaker, Benjamin Geisler, he went, mm. he went in search of them and found them. Wow. But during that time, Poland, the city in Poland had transferred to Ukraine. And on uncovering these paintings, which he found, these murals on the wall of children's story characters, the Jewish Holocaust m- Museum in, uh, in Israel mm-hmm. found out about them. And they went there to Ukraine and chiseled them out of the wall and transported them back to Israel without any authorization. Not the whole building, but pieces yeah. of it. So this is kind of like trans-architecture of parts because it's part of the building. It's like this painting is embedded into the wall. They've taken it away. Yeah. But yeah, everyone feels they've got some ownership to this because the Ukraine government feel the painting should never have been removed. And the Israelis say the paintings belong in Israel. And the, and the Polish government, they say that it should be in Poland because he was born in Poland and the country was in Poland. So... It's it's complicated, uh, yeah. tragic and complicated. But that was one of the starting points. Let me think. Okay, yeah, people could move buildings. That and I studied at Newcastle University and spent a lot of time in the Hatton Gallery where they've got the Mers Barn, uh, which was by Kurt Schwitters, uh, an artist who uh, moved to the UK uh, during World War Two as a refugee. He spent time living on the Isle of Man before settling in Cumbria, and he made this mural kind of on the walls 
in a barn in the countryside. He called it the Mers Barn. Mm-hmm. And it was his final piece of work, but he never finished it. And he'd done two previously, both of which were, were lost. He did one in Germany, and he did one during his time in Norway as well. But both of those were lost. So it's the only example of a, a, bar, a Mers that he his art form that he created. And it's kind of like physical sculpture collage on a wall, mm-hmm. pasting things on and bringing things together. And I really enjoyed going and seeing that a lot whilst I was at university. But you think, well, how did they get this here? It's come all the way from Cumbria. They said that it was going to be lost. So rightly or wrongly, they said we should be preserving this heritage of what you know Schwitters has done, not leaving it in the middle of the countryside to go to rack and ruin. Mm. They got it about themselves in the 60s. When it was King's College of Durham was it before Newcastle University. It was transported there to what we now know as Newcastle University and placed inside the Hatton Gallery. Although for many years, it just existed in a, a shipping container outside. Yeah. So, yeah, and they, they've tried to make the piece feel like you're in the barn because it's in this, this dim, dimly lit gallery space. Mm. And there's this chink of light in the corner coming through from the ceiling, which is apparently similar, just like it was in the, in the barn. Yeah. It's great, though. I, I do really appreciate it. It's lovely to be able to go and see it. You can really, I feel, for me anyway, maybe I've spent too long with it, but I go regularly and I feel like I can picture myself there and, and tra- it transports me to the countryside, mm. to, to being in that environment, to being this, especially if you're in that space on your own. Mm. Um, so I think the, the presentation of it is well done at the Hatton. But yeah, again, that was one of the things that just inspired me to think, architecture, people moving buildings, why are they doing that? One of the others, which was a, a big inspiration, was in Madrid. And yeah. I've loved, I love Madrid. I've been a lot of times. And uh, they have their, an Egyptian temple, an original Egyptian temple, authentic. And you think, well, hang on a minute. What's this Egyptian temple doing in the middle of Madrid? You know, this is quite mm. far from Egypt. I mean, <laughs> my history might be a bit patchy with the Egyptians, but I'm pretty sure they didn't colonize <laughs> Spain, did they? So, yeah, what happened was in the 60s, they, was, they were building this dam in Egypt to make a new lake, this huge lake. And in doing so, they were, they were putting these heritage sites at risk of flooding. And UNESCO launched this appeal to, to everyone and said, can anyone help us to try and preserve these ancient buildings? Mm. The Spanish got involved and a few other countries. And they, they lent their support and helped out. And as a token of their appreciation, the Egyptian state said, like, oh, we'd like to donate this temple to you. So, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> they transported it along the Med on a boat and then up into the center of Spain, into Madrid. And it was rebuilt in the early 70s in the West Park, Parque de Oeste, and uh, opened to the public. And you can still go there and see it today. It's lovely because it's outdoors as well. Mm. Um, There's a few other examples of Egyptian architecture, like temples in other cities, in in other countries. Uh, In New York, there's one. In Leiden, in Holland, there's one as well. And also in Turin in Italy. Mm -hmm. But I think those ones are actually indoors. So yeah, it's one you can see outdoors. It made me think, like, what would happen in history if in the future kind of records are kind of maybe lost or changed and people try to patch things together from what we know and they'd be like, wow, yeah, the Egyptians really got quite far. They <laughs> colonised all these places, you know, they got really far. <laughs> I like to think that it would. It would confuse lots of archaeologists. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was Bruno Schultz and Kurt Schwitters and this temple in Madrid, uh, Egyptian temple, and all of that that kind of came together for me to make me think, like, is there something I could do with all this? And that project was kind of born from that. 
And I know that you wrote approximately, I think you said about 4,000 words of your article, but you said that you never did anything with it. Could I ask what happened that stopped you from progressing with it? I suppose overall, I lost this kind of, you have a fire for something, don't you? When you get going with a project and you just want to, you want to put all your time to it and dedicate and edit, edit it and work towards it and realize it. And maybe I had too much time. Mm. So that was that, I suppose. I could say life got busy and there's there's always, I think, with failure or these ideas of coming up with excuses as to why you didn't finish something. Mm. Ultimately, it's myself to blame. But, you know, I can say that my life was busy. I had my son was born. My wife got ill. I gave up my studio. Mm. I, you know, I, I had busy times looking after everyone. But it's not really about that. There's always something else you could be saying it's to do with, but ultimately, I think it lies with me. And I said, it wasn't even about a fear of failure. It was like, like I've, I've had that before with projects where you're like, you're afraid to start it. This was like, yeah. I've started it. I just need to finish it. And, yeah. and by finish it, I felt like it just needs to be tidied up and everything given some succinctness, put into different categories. Artists with trans architecture, millionaires, I suppose, with trans architecture, historical heritage architect, trans architecture. And I was kind of grappling with why and trying to kind of theme and a thread throughout. Yeah. And I couldn't piece it all together as like, it's one thing. I suppose if it is one thing, it's that all these buildings have been moved or relocated or parts of them have been. That should be enough. But I was getting lost in the kind of academic side of it. And that was, that was becoming a struggle for me. Like, I ultimately couldn't keep up with it. I made it a bit too big, maybe. And too many notes, and couldn't I couldn't get into it. It was shortly after my dissertation. I really enjoyed writing my dissertation for my masters. I wrote about mm-hmm. Baz Janada, who's a Dutch artist who was really interested in failure. Actually, he he used to make these videos of himself falling over. <laughs> uh, it's really fun. He made a film of himself falling off his house. This is back in the sixties, late sixties, early seventies, and there's a film of him falling off his house. It's like 30 seconds long, your kind of classic YouTube thing you see today. And I really liked that. I was interested in the idea of falling. So I was looking at him for a while and I really enjoyed writing it. And after I finished it, I just needed a new project. I had the desire to write something, but then I never finished it. I was interested in what you said about kind of struggling a little bit with getting bogged down in the academic side of it. One of my previous interviewees, Adam Smythe, said this thing where... Maybe if a project isn't working, it needs another form. Did you ever consider trying a different form for the project? Yeah, totally. So yeah, I thought about like, what if this project doesn't need to be an academic thing? My initial kind of desires and hopes for it were like, I could write something really strong that I could submit to the sculpture journal and they'd be interested in it and they'd want to publish it. Yeah. And uh, I was like, no, I can't, can't do this actually. <laughs> this isn't going to yeah. work. And that's not necessarily the case. I think some of it might be of interest to them if I really wanted to. What I was going to do with it instead was make a zine because I really like making zines. Silly little things that are lo-fi, small production, but they've got production costs and and they're about time and effort and the resources. Mm. And I thought if I just put like some of the text that I've got, the research, just hone it down to something that needs to be and then add an image or even draw an image of the building, maybe people would be interested in buying that, owning that, reading that. And having that information, but then also I, I wasn't convinced that people necessarily wanted that, or that I want to put myself through the time to do that. And yeah, it could still happen. I don't know if it will. If anybody out there would like a zine <laughs> about trans architecture, do drop me a line. <laughs> 
Well, I did want to ask actually is that you obviously still sound really enthusiastic about trans architecture. Do you think you would ever go back to it now and look at it again? Yeah, totally. The great thing about your project actually is it kind of reignited my interest in it by forcing me to go, okay, what was I talking about? What's it all about? (laughs) And having to revisit it and putting myself in that position to, to go through everything again and go, oh, that's good, actually. I like that bit. Or Mm. what the heck was that about? It's helped to reignite something. It would be good to finish it. It's about making myself do it. So hopefully this conversation and the realization that I was onto something that I did enjoy, I think it's largely about being enjoyable rather than it being academic at this stage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely something that comes up a lot on this program is people say, well, actually lifting the pressure of making it the original thing that it was intended to be can be very freeing and you can turn it into something else or, yeah, just change your mind a little bit with it. So perhaps that will happen. It would be good to, otherwise it's 4,000 words of just me (laughs) (laughs) just writing about stuff that no one's ever going to read. And sometimes that's okay. There have have been other projects I've I've got texts that I've started and never finished or or have finished but never done anything with short things or ideas and there's always lots of ideas and ideas don't necessarily have to be realized and that's that's what I've realized over the years is yeah you know I might have an idea one day any day most days and mm. I think oh that's a good idea I like that not gonna do it <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to write it down where there's time and where I really believe in something I'll go oh that's a good idea I wonder if I could do that and then I'll and I'll see it through and I try and make it happen quickly efficiently and succinctly before I lose yeah. an interest in it <laughs> and if something takes too long and it takes me a while to get back to, that's when it that's when it peters off and it's when it's like, oh, that I failed at doing that or I failed to do it or I failed to realise it. Or... So you've come to a position then where you're sort of okay with not finishing things? Yeah, definitely. I think I said before, like the fear of failure is, is one that stops you from starting things. And mm. I've had that as well before about projects. And I don't, I don't want to have that. So I don't pressurise myself to do it. Some people will see that as like, you don't want to start it because because you, you, you worried you won't make it good enough or something like that. And yeah. it's not necessarily about that for me because I'll make something and it doesn't come out how I expected it to. Mm-hmm. And I kind of go with expecting that to happen. And I mm. really like that. Whether that's a drawing that I try to do and I think that didn't come anything come out anything like I thought it would in my head. Yeah. Or whether it's yeah, a written text or a video I've made. Uh, I used to make a lot more ceramics, but having no access to a kiln for a few years has been quite tricky. Sure not having access that kill my creativity you need to find other outlets so I do lots mm. of other things like I'll make games for friends to play even if it's just like gifts for my wife for a birthday like last year I got some little miniature figures and made this box for her yeah and then you look inside and you can see this scene that's adorable <laughs> yeah yeah it's just she really likes miniatures and and I really like making projects and bringing some kind of everyday kind of smiles to people and enjoyment and people get something out of something I've made that's enjoyable that's good.